think most of you know uh, I, have, I have three little boys living in my house. They're, they're five and eight tomorrow. Jed's eight tomorrow. You can tell them happy birthday to Sam. And uh, Asher is nine. And so oftentimes with your children and uh, as, you're, as you're teaching them and you're trying to guide them and trying to bring them along, what you find is a lot of times it's very helpful to use illustrations, use uh, concrete things that they can put their hands on uh, to help them understand things. I remember uh, reading years ago, uh, about uh, it was a story about a, a school teacher teach, taking her kids to see a mountain. They had never seen a mountain before. She had told them about a mountain. They didn't know what it was. It was an inner city school, and so she took them out and showed them this mountain and what an experience that was. And so I read that, and then shortly after that, I climbed Sawney Mountain with Jed and Asher when they were little bitty kids, right? And it was like, this is just a way that we're going to do this together. And so there's something about seeing tangible things that you can put your hands on. It's one thing to hear it. But it's another thing to see it. It's like when you start to teach kids math. You get out the blocks and you've got five and we take away three. How many do we have left? And they can actually see it and hold on to it. And so it makes an abstract idea very concrete and they can hold on to it. And so we learn that way. It's important for us to do that. Uh, It's the same for us as adults. Uh, I, I worked in an architecture firm for years and I had a really great boss once who used to tell me all the time, every Friday no- afternoon just about, he'd come by your desk and go, why are you here? You need to go out to the job sites and look at what we're building and what we're doing. And he'd say, go take pictures and go look at it and see what you've drawn and how they're building it. And you'd go and you'd learn more in that hour on Friday afternoon than you would all week because you would see uh, the way that they built it, which was usually not the way you drew it. They were fixing your mistakes and you would learn from it and all that kind of stuff. But seeing it, Seeing the the concrete thing and not just an idea on a piece of paper made a huge difference. And so we learn a lot of times that way. And so as we're reading through the book of Hebrews, we see this happening over and over. Uh, In a lot of ways, the author of the book of Hebrews is taking concrete, real-life things that the early church knew, uh, the temple and the priesthood and sacrifices and things they had grown up with and they had been around and now he's applying deep spiritual truths and he's going, these, all these things point you more fully to who God is and what he's like and how Jesus brings all these things to fulfillment. And so he's showing you that picture over and over and he's doing so. We've been talking about this each week. He keeps coming back to these different things and making these connections and he's doing so to encourage a very discouraged church, a church that's struggling Uh, with hardships around them, what's going on in the world. In a lot of ways, they're ostracized for their beliefs. A lot of the church that the author's writing to here were Jews that had grown up in that, and now they've become Christians and they're seeing the fulfillment, but they're being ostracized for their beliefs. People are going, what in the world? And he's going, no, 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 you keep going. You keep staying in this because this is the fulfillment of all you've believed. And so we've been working our way through Hebrews, and we keep seeing that. It keeps reassuring us. It's kind of like seeing uh, when you're driving down the road and you see a sign for your exit, right? You don't know where you're going and you're following directions and then you see the sign, your exit's in a half mile and you go, oh, I'm almost there. And then there's the exit and you're sure this is it because you saw the sign. It's the same thing he's doing with Hebrews. All these signs and all these pictures have pointed to Jesus. And so if you're discouraged, he's going, no, 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 that points to Jesus and this points to Jesus. We've said over and over in a lot of ways, Hebrews is just that Jesus is better than everything. Here's the way that we were operating before with the temple and the priesthood and all these things. He says, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And so that's really what we've been doing as we walk our way through Hebrews. And as we do so, we see all these things that come up, that Jesus is better than the temple. He's the true and better temple. He's the true and better Moses. Last week we talked about he's an anchor for our soul. 
And the author, what he tells us when he says that is all these promises that were given to Abraham, another one that they would look up to. He says all those promises were guaranteed and came to fruition because of what God's doing, not Abraham's. He says it's Jesus, it's God and what he's done. He's the anchor, not Abraham. And so we see this over and over. And so you see, uh, we'll see it actually in chapter 8. He'll use this phrase. And then again, I think in chapter 10, that it says we... All these things we're talking about serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Right? There's so much deeper going on than what you were even seeing with the temple or the priesthood or all these things. And so today we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 7 and we're going to revisit this idea of the high priest. We talked about this uh, probably six weeks ago, maybe five or six weeks ago. We talked about the high priest and how Jesus is our great high priest and he can sympathize with us in all that we go through. And we looked at that in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. And today we're going to talk about Jesus as the high priest. But today we're really going to focus on this idea of him as our intercessor or our advocate. That's what it says at the end of chapter 7. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Although we've talked about high priests before, I think we're going to see it more fully, a little different side of this this morning. And so this is the way I want us to look at it. First, we're just going to ask the question, why do we need an intercessor? Or why do we need an advocate at all? And then secondly, why is Jesus the perfect advocate? Why is he the perfect intercessor? And then lastly, the freedom that comes with that when you see it. And so let's pray, and then we're going to open Hebrews 7 together and look at that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal and that it is life-giving, that you create through your word, but you recreate through your word, that you remake us and you renew us. We thank you that your words are not just words on a page, but they are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray this morning that you would just show us the areas of our life where we're not trusting in you completely, that you would just lovingly point us back to how you meet all those needs, how you truly are our advocate and our intercessor and what that means for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so that's the three ways we're going to look at it. Why do we need an advocate? Why Jesus is our perfect advocate? And then lastly, the freedom that comes with it. But real briefly, before I jump into that, we've just gotten to Hebrews 7. If you've been here with us, we're working our way through. And I'm really going to pick up in verse 23. And so you go, wait a second, what about Hebrews 7? 1 to 22. And what, what we have there is the author makes this comparison of Jesus with this guy from the Old Testament known as Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek in the Old Testament, he actually tells you here who he is. If you don't know the story in the Old Testament, it goes back to Genesis chapter 14. And it's a guy that was a, a high priest and a king, and he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham offers tithes to him. And he's this kind of shadowy figure that just pops up in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden there he is. And it says he's a king and a priest. This is the king of Salem, which Old Testament, before it's established, that's really Jerusalem. That's what we're talking about. It's the king of Salem or Jerusalem. And he's a high priest. And it says Abraham offered these uh, tithes to him and he blessed him. And so what he's doing is he's showing you that there's a priesthood that predated the priesthood that comes from the Levites, that comes down after Moses gets the ten commandments gets the plans for the temple and the priesthood that's instituted before that he says there was this guy that was a priest before that it's melchizedek he said and just as he predates the other priesthood so jesus predates the other priesthood and he's making this comparison there with melchizedek and with jesus and he says now melchizedek had the power of an indestructible life and i think what he's talking about is in the bible we don't know his genealogy he just is there All of a sudden, there's this guy, and he does this stuff, and then he kind of goes away, and we don't know, and we're like, well, who was that? 
right? And so what happens is people will speculate a lot. They'll go, well, Melchizedek is maybe Jesus in the Old Testament. And they'll go, oh, maybe that's the picture of what's going on. We don't know that. He doesn't say that here. He says Jesus is similar. He never makes that direct connection. So I'm not comfortable saying that because he doesn't. In Hebrews, God's Word doesn't tell us that. Some people will say it's an angel or a heavenly figure or this is who he was. And the simply what I'm going to say, and the reason we're just going to kind of step right over that to a degree, is we just don't know. We don't know who he was. We just know that the author here uses him, a, a picture that's in Scripture, to point you more fully to who Jesus is. That's what he does. And then he goes on to explain why Jesus is our perfect high priest, our perfect intercessor. And so I don't want to just lightly skim over that. It's an important uh, picture that he's painting there to help us point to Jesus. But it can lead to a whole lot of speculation that I don't think is real fruitful. If you remember at the end of Hebrews 5, he talks about moving on to maturity. And he says maturity, uh, or he says it this way, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And so what he says is unskilled is immature in the words of righteousness. So the, the connotation there is being skilled in the word of righteousness, being skilled in the gospel and how it applies to every area of your life what we often call gospel fluency, that's what it looks like to be mature. Maturity is not trying to figure out all the ways that maybe who Melchizedek is, right? Because that becomes kind of fruitless after a while. We're not sure the Bible doesn't tell us. It's there to point us to that Jesus is better than the high priest. He's the great high priest. And so that's where I want us to go this morning. So just if you notice that, if you're here, we're walking through all those verses and you go, why did he just kind of skim over those? That's why. So, why do we need an advocate? Look at verse 23, 24, and 25 with me. And so he goes back talking about the Old Testament priesthood. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Again, he's talking about Jesus. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so I want you to hear just right there, why do we need an intercessor? And this is the most obvious point I'm going to make, but it needs to be said. It says, those that draw near to Jesus, he lives to make intercession for you. That means the creator God of the universe lives to do this. And so that tells me I need an intercessor. That Jesus lives to do this makes me go, yeah, I need that. Now, that's, that's a pretty obvious, straightforward, but it needs to be said. And so what, the reason we would say scripturally we desperately need an intercessor is that we are sinners. We have ignored God and the world he has created. We have cut off our relationship with him. We've thumbed our nose at him. We've said, I don't need you in so many ways in our life. But Jesus comes to bridge that gap and to be our intercessor. And we could go on and on about that and talk about in the scriptures. And, and we do often. We say that frequently. We are sinners in need of a Savior. But what I want to uh, make the point to you this morning when we talk about we need an intercessor is I would say to you, you don't even have to believe in the Bible to know this. You don't even have to open the Bible to know that you need an intercessor. That you need someone to be your advocate, to take up your case for you. The Bible actually tells us that, that we know this. But I want you to think about that picture for just a second. When I was in a seminary, I had a professor assign a book called True Faced. And True Faced was a book about the mask that we wear in our life. That was the way the author kind of laid the picture out. 
He said, everywhere we go, wherever we are, who we're around, we're seeking acceptance. We're seeking to be uh, loved and people care for us. And so we put on different masks everywhere we go. And it depends on who we're around, what our mask looks like. And so, for example, if I use myself as the example, I get up early this morning and I come here. Actually, on my way, I met my parents for breakfast at 6 o'clock this morning. And so when I walk in to meet my parents for breakfast, suddenly the mask, the identity, the who I am is a son now instead of a husband and a father. Right? I'm with my parents and it changes a little. And then I leave there and I come here and I start to do the things that I need to do here. And now it's as pastor or elder or one that wants to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I kind of assume that role and I start to function that way. And then I leave here today and I'll go home and uh, I'll have a couple of hours with just Joanna and the boys and it'll be husband and father. Right? Or, or I'll go Monday to soccer practice and I've just gotten roped into so, uh, coaching Jed's team. So I'll be coach, right? I'll be authority figure to the little boys and a helper to the parents. Right? Then I'll come home and I'll be neighbor and friend of the people around me. And so I'll function in all those different ways. And so what the book said, and I think it's very true in a lot of ways, is that when we do that in each one of those situations, you're putting on some kind of front of what I want, I think is a good pastor, a good husband, a good neighbor, a good friend, a good coach, all those things. And I want to be accepted and good at those things. I want to be good at all those things that I have and all those different uh, uh, identities I take on throughout the day, each day. We all do this in different ways. Maybe you can relate to some of those. Maybe your life looks a little different in some of the ones you relate to. But as you go through it, and this is what the author of the book said, is oftentimes we fail. We make mistakes and we blow it in all these different ways in these different times. And we try our best to hide those failures, right? We try to, I'm going to keep everything in balance, Right? And we do it in all different ways. And so what we do as we go about is some days uh, I just flat out blow it and I know it. And sometimes uh, that's just go straight to God and confess my sin. And man, I blew it and that is a mess. Some days I blow it, but I still try to cover that up. Uh, some days I do what I think is right and I'm doing well, but I upset somebody. And then I go, oh, well, maybe I didn't do it right. Right. You ever do that? Right? You think you're doing the right thing, you think you're saying the right thing, and you really upset somebody. And then you go, maybe I didn't say that the right way. Yeah, I don't know about you, but this is internal monologue that goes along. Could I have said that differently? Was that not the right way? Should I have not said that? I'll go through this. Or if it's something that's really bothering me, I'll go to a friend, and I'll go, hey, this is what happened. What do you think? Right? And do you see what I'm doing? Maybe you can relate to this, but I'm pleading my case. I'm doing it all the time, internally, oh, I think I blew that, or, or I'm reassuring myself, no, you did the right thing, it's their fault, right? You ever do that one? And so we go through this all the time, or we go and we get somebody else to come alongside us. And sometimes it's, it's really looking for wisdom, sometimes it's trying to be assured, sometimes it's trying to pat yourself on the back, a whole variation of all those things. Like just, just this past week, my son and another little boy kind of got in a a scuffle the other day and so then it's try to deal with the parents and what's going on and then I think they're upset at me and then I'm going did I not handle that right or do I not and I go through all that uh you can you can talk to uh, uh Josh we were talking about it the other day uh we were having breakfast and it's like this is what happened what do you think right and I'm looking for reassurance I'm kind of pleading my case so somebody will go yeah and I think the truth is if we're honest we all do that in all different ways all the time 
We're constantly either internally or externally with friends or different people. We're pleading our case. We're doing it over and over. And you don't even have to open the Bible and hear about Jesus as your great advocate and intercessor to know that would be pretty nice. Right? Someone who would take up my case for me. That would be really great. And so that's the picture that happens with a lot of us. And I want you to think about why. I said earlier that Hebrews tells us that a lot of the things he's pointing to are just to serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. I think it's a copy and a shadow of deep spiritual matters when I'm pleading my case constantly. Right? That's a spiritual thing going on. I want to be accepted and I want to be loved and I want to be known. And so I constantly am pleading my case either internally or externally with other people. Right? That people would go, yeah, yeah, you did the right thing. Good job. You did handle that well. That's not your fault. Right? Or if I blew it, that they go, hey, you blew it, but here's how I think you should uh, go about it now. And so we do that frequently because we're seeking those things. We want to be known and we want to be loved. And so we try to make good and we try to justify our case. And we do that over and over and over. And it's a constant battle. And so there's a struggle that's there that points us to that we all desperately need an advocate. And I'd say people that you meet and people you come into contact with that are not believers, they're doing this all the time. I think that's why people like to gossip so much. Makes them feel better about their own failures to talk bad about other people. Right? And that's not excluding the church. We do that a lot within the church, sadly, as well, too. But that's because we desperately need an advocate. So I want to point you to why Jesus is the perfect advocate. He's the perfect intercessor for you. And so look at verse 24 there for just a second. It says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Right? I just, just start there, that Jesus is the advocate and the intercessor, the high priest, who continues in this office forever. So we say, why is Jesus the perfect advocate? Again, the really obvious, and we'll start there, is that he's eternal and he lives to do so. It's a pretty good reason he's a good advocate. He's always been and always will be, and he lives to do so, and he's perfect. And so when you start to think about it, but I want us to think uh, just more fully on that idea. We talked a few weeks ago, if you were here, about the idea of the high priest in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to redo that whole thing. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to it. The sermons are there. Uh, a lot of people struggle with that idea of the high priest. It's foreign to us. When we talk about uh, concrete things that we now are applying, the audience here knew the high priesthood, and they knew the temple, and that made perfect sense. It's hard for us. And so when we think about advocate, I want to switch kind of the example instead of going back and going through all that again. And just to think for a moment this morning of a courtroom with a lawyer. I think that makes more sense to us than trying to see the, the high priest and the temple and all those things that are so foreign to us. Because all of us, in some way or another, whether we've been on jury duty and we've actually been in a courtroom, or you, you've turned on court TV before, or if you're like me, I used to love to watch Law & Order, right? So I've seen all those court cases on Law & Order. That's something that's familiar to us. Uh, if you're my age or older, you remember O.J. Simpson's case, right? The most televised law case ever in the history of the world. And I still remember, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, right? That's, that was the tagline. That was O.J.'s lawyer saying that. And you saw real clearly the importance of having a good advocate, a good lawyer on your side. And you saw that played out. 
And you've seen that scenario over and over. And you know enough to know that your advocate, your lawyer, becomes you in court. You don't say anything. They speak on your behalf. And so as it goes for your lawyer and what he says, it gets applied to you. That's the picture that happens. Oftentimes, the defendant in a case won't say anything. Right? Your lawyer will say to you, you just be quiet. Right? You don't know the law. You don't know exactly how this works. I do. That's why you have me, and I will do this for you. And so that's the picture that we see, and we're very familiar with that picture. And so when we apply it here and we begin to think about this, that Jesus lives to be your advocate, he lives to be your intercessor, that's a pretty comforting thing when you stop and think about it. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone that would say, you can lay out everything in my life, every relationship, every conversation, every thought, and I don't need anyone to take up my case for me. I'm willing to stand behind that and be fully good with that. I've yet to meet a person who says, yeah, that's me, right? Every thought of your mind, everything, every bit of it, and go, yeah, I'm good with that. And so the idea that Jesus would come and be your intercessor, your advocate, is actually pretty comforting. But the problem I think we have, and I'm speaking for me and, and, and conversations I've had with different people, is we hear that and we get kind of that idea but it's, it's just mildly comforting. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, I like that. He stands and intercedes for me. But I think it goes something like this. And this is based on conversations I've had and even my own heart and wrestling with this at different times. But we think sometimes like that Jesus has, is a lawyer standing in the heavenlies and he's got this giant caseload and each day he pulls your file open, right? He pulls it open and he goes, oh, J.P. Morris flips, ah, oh. he blew it again. Right. Just yesterday, he lost his temper. He did this. He didn't show up, you know, goes through the list of different things. And he turns to the father and says, please, please have mercy on him. He's a mess. It seems like he's getting better, but then he goes right back and he makes these mistakes. Please have mercy on him. And we think of it kind of like that. Right. That that's the way our mind works. And there he is. And they go, it's nice. It's comforting. that will take my file every day. And even though I blow it, that he still stands up and does it over and over, that's comforting. But it's also kind of like it leaves us with this, okay, he pleads mercy, and now I'll go on my way and try to do better today. Right? That's kind of the way we operate. Or at least that's the uh, uh, feeling I get when I talk to different people about this idea. But is that what Jesus looks like as your perfect advocate? You go, no, that's not it. And so look at what it says in verse 26 to 28. For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be our intercessor, to be our advocate? And it's simply this. Jesus doesn't stand up on behalf of you before the Father and beg for mercy. Oh, please, 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 he blew it again. That's not the picture that's there. He is our advocate, and just like a lawyer before the court assumes you, the law 
is, is there speaking on your behalf. Jesus stands up on your behalf before the Father, and he's not asking for mercy. He's asking for justice. He's acting for justice because it says he's already paid this in full by offering himself. And so when he stands up on your behalf, he says, no, no, please give him mercy. He says, no, I've already paid for it. And he stands for you and he says, this is my child and he is made new and his sin is paid and his perfect life is wrapped in me and he's mine. That's what it means that he's your advocate. And oftentimes we see it so just a piece of it. We don't see the fullness of what it means that he does this. And when he does, we get what he means in verse 25 here. Consequently, he is able to serve to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him. What that means, that picture that is there, is there's nothing that he can't cover. There's nothing that his sacrifice cannot take on. And so I said earlier this idea of the mask that we wear. We put on a good front because we want people to think, oh, he's a good person and he's got it together. And every, oh, he's doing this and he's doing that. And so there's masks that we wear. And I think even in this book, when I read it, the author talked about that we have levels, right? I have a mask that I show to everybody and then maybe some closer friends. I take that one off, but I still got another one on. And then the very closest, I take another one off, but there's still one on that I'm not letting anybody see under. And what people will often say is, yeah, but if you knew this about me. Yeah, you say God forgives and that's what Jesus does in his sacrifice. But if you knew this, I don't know about that. I don't know that he could cover that. And so I want you to understand what it says here when it says he's able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him. Whatever deep, dark secret is tucked away in the back of your closet. The mask that you don't dare take off for anyone. If they knew that, they would never love me or accept me. I can't go there. I'm not taking that one off. Whatever that is, please Please, please hear me. Jesus says, I know it, and I've paid for it, and I love you, and I've got you. And you don't have to hide that. You don't have to keep the one on that you're never going to show anybody. Because he is the perfect high priest that stands in your place, that takes all of it. You are wrapped in his love and his acceptance because of what he's done, and you can rest in that. That's what it means that he's your intercessor and your advocate. That's the picture that's there. And so every single one of us doesn't want to take off that last mask or the last two or the last three or whatever it is because we want to be known and we want to be loved. And praise God in Jesus, you are. That's what it means that he's your advocate. It's not just, oh, he pleads for mercy. He says, no, I've got you. I've got you completely and totally. And you cling to me in all things. And so you go, what does that mean exactly? Paul says it so well in Romans 8. He says it perfectly. What shall we say to these things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he's the one who's raised. He's at the right hand of God, and he indeed intercedes for us. And then Paul says so beautifully, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means that he's your intercessor, that he's your advocate. And so when we say, well, why is that freedom when you get that? All that you are looking for on the mask that you wear, you already have in Jesus. It's already yours. He already loves you completely and totally and fully. And all the ways that we try to hide what we're really like and and that he couldn't forgive me for that, he already knows. And if you are drawing near to the Father through Jesus, he's already got you. He's already forgiven you those things. There's a quote in your bulletin that Tim Keller says it so well. Most of our desires for success are actually our efforts to be for ourselves what only Jesus can really be for us. And so when I put on a mask and go, oh, I want to make people think I'm good at this and I'm good at that, I'm looking for approval and love that I already have in Christ, that He's already given me completely and totally. And I can rest in that. And there's a great freedom in that when we realize. Instead of being up and down and... Uh, just being crushed when somebody's upset with us or those things and being tossed to and fro with our emotions. When we fix our eyes on Christ, you see that he is your advocate and he's fully got you. And so you cling to him in faith. And when you do so, lastly, as we talk about the freedom that comes in that, is that it gives us a great humility and a great boldness. A boldness to be faithful and obedient to the things Jesus has called us to even when they might be misunderstood and even when people might think that's crazy or I can't believe that guy believes that or those things, that's okay because you're wrapped in his love and he's got you. And so you can be bold in the midst of that. But also incredibly humble because I realize that all that I have and all that I am is only by grace and what Jesus has done for me. And so I can never begin to look down at other people. Oh, why don't they? That's me. I desperately need an advocate on my side. And thanks be to God that we do in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the beautiful and glorious picture that you've given us. All these different pictures and symbols and the ways that you've revealed yourself to us. That you are our great high priest. That you are our advocate. You are our intercessor. That you go before and you wrap us in your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray that we would continue just to look to you in all things, to cling to faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.